The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews. We'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 1, which you'll be able to find on page 1372 of your pew Bible. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time, in in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels, as he ever says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The word of God. This afternoon, we'll be taking a break from working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism and we will be looking to the Belgian Confession. We'll be looking at Article 12, the creation of all things, especially the angels, which you'll be able to find on page 503 of your book, your book of praise. We believe that the Father, through the Word, that is, through His Son, has created out of nothing heaven and earth and all creatures when it seemed good to Him and that he has given to every creature its being, shape, and form, and to each its specific task and function to serve its creator. We believe that he also continues to sustain and govern them according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power in order to serve man to the end that man may serve his God. He also created the angels good to be his messengers and to serve his elect. Some of these have fallen from the exalted position in which God created them into everlasting perdition. But the others have, by the grace of God, remained steadfast and continued in their first state. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and of all that is good. With all their might, they lie in wait like murderers, 
to ruin the church and all its members and to destroy everything by their wicked devices. They are therefore by their own wickedness sentenced to eternal damnation and daily expect their horrible torments. Therefore we detest and reject the error of the Sadducees who deny that there are any spirits and angels and also the error of the Manichees who say that the devils were not created but have their origin of themselves and that without having become corrupted, they are wicked by their own nature. Beloved congregation of our risen Savior, do you believe in the spiritual world? Do you believe that it exists? Many people in our country don't accept the supernatural. They may believe in ghosts and the afterlife, but angels and demons? A war that's being waged around us? Even God? That seems a little bit far-fetched for them. Because it's not something that they feel like they interact with on a regular basis. They don't think about it much. And again, when it rains in the world, it drips in the church. Because they don't think about it much, we don't tend to think about it much. It's not that we don't necessarily believe it, but just that that's the attitude that seeps into us. But the spirit world is real. In the West, we're an exception. Much of the world doesn't see the world just in the sense of the material, in the things that you can see, taste, touch, and feel. We have the black and white world of physical and spiritual. But in most of the rest of the world, it's recognized that there's a gray area where the physical and the spiritual overlap where the spiritual world interacts with the physical world. Now, I could tantalize you with all kinds of stories. I know of a missionary from Brazil who spoke about a young girl who was involved with a voodoo cult there. They would drum and work themselves into a frenzy, waiting for a demon to possess this young girl, using her as a vessel to speak with them. She would drink a whole bottle of vodka, and then start jumping higher and higher with the drums beating a wild rhythm until she was jumping six feet in the air. And they knew that the demon had arrived when she began to speak with the voice of a man. I have no reason to doubt the word of that missionary. But it's not on stories like that that we depend to believe that the spiritual world is real. Stories like this can make it clear that in those cultures, the spirit world is very real for them. But for you here today, third-hand stories aren't what ought to persuade you. We don't need stories to frighten us or to make our skin crawl to persuade ourselves that the spirit world is real. We have assurance of it right here in God's Word. There are spiritual forces at work in the world, and they're real. To see everything of what God says in his word and about the spiritual world would take much more time than we have here today. Today we'll be lifting a bit of the veil and see a small portion of what God has to say about the action that goes on behind the scenes. And we'll do that under the following theme and points. You are not alone. First of all, look at angels, then demons, and finally the king of the spiritual world.
The common idea of angels in popular culture is the picture of one who sits on your shoulder and he whispers things into your ear. Or maybe Cupid, he's a popular one. A fat little baby with wings who shoots arrows made of hearts and causes people to fall in love. Shoulder angels and cherubs who look like babies, however, are not the picture that the Bible gives. The Bible gives us a completely different picture. The very name angel, malach in Hebrew and angelos in Greek, means messenger or envoy. And so their name, angel, is not so much a description of their nature, but of their task on earth. Angels are powerful beings. They were created by God. And when exactly this creation happened, which day it happened on, the Bible's not entirely clear. What is clear, however, is that they were created for a specific purpose. The first appearance of angels that we see is in the Garden of Eden. After the fall into sin, we see cherubs, or cherubim, guarding the entry back into the garden with a flaming sword. They later appear in the tabernacle and the temple as those protecting the most holy place, being carved into the Ark of the Covenant and woven into the curtain that separated the most holy place from the people of God. And they're also carved in Solomon's temple on the walls. They were fierce warriors, always depicted as guarding the holiness of God. We're also introduced to the seraphim, or burning ones. The root of their name in Hebrew is the word for to burn. They come to the foreground in Isaiah's vision with two wings to cover their feet, two wings to cover their faces, and two wings to fly. Uniquely different from the cherubim, they stand not as guards, but as servants around the king, ready to swiftly fly and carry out his bidding. And finally, we meet the only two named angels, Michael and Gabriel, named in the book of Daniel and elsewhere. We're told about the seven angels who stand before the throne of God in Revelation 8 verse 2. And we're told about angels who are assigned the responsibility of looking after kingdoms. There are legions of angels, not an infinite number, but according to Revelation 5 verse 11, 10,000 times 10,000. It's a number that's meant to, meant to express that it's more angels than John, who was looking at, was able to count. And through the description of an angel at the chief prince in Daniel 10, verse 13, we learn that among these myriads of angels, there are ranks in dignity and authority. But for all that, while they are powerful and magnificent creatures, angels are still creatures. And they are placed here with a specific purpose in mind. Mankind was created in the image of God. Mankind was created to be a steward over all of creation. Angels, on the other hand, had a different task. As powerful as they are, as glorious as their position is, being able to go to and fro over all the earth, reporting all that they see and do before the throne of grace, Job 1 verse 6. They are not lords over mankind, but rather they are ministers of God. They're servants carrying out his bidding. 
In what way do they do that? We find that in our passage, Hebrews 1 verse 14. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. They are sent to watch over the saints of God, to guard over His people. Is there a one-to-one relationship? Guardian angels for individuals? That we don't know. It's a pretty thought, but the Bible doesn't speak to it. We know from Matthew 18, verse 10, that there is a special class of angels who take care of the little ones, who stand before the throne of God, but if they stay with them throughout their lives, we're not told that. These angels are your fellow warriors, beloved. They are here to help you on your way. Are there days when you feel alone in the world? God has promised that these angels will be there to fight alongside of you. Are there days when you feel that the spiritual war you're in feels especially strong? When temptation feels overwhelming? God has directed his angels to fight beside you, ministering to you as you make war against your temptations. You're not alone. God's given you company. They rejoice when God brings you home after a season of wandering. They're there to watch over you. It's not just God who is there. Although His eternal presence with us should be enough, He knows us in our weaknesses. And so He's placed these angelic beings in our lives as symbols of His constant providence. You're not alone. Having established that we're not alone and that we have angels who stand by us in our fight, it becomes clear that the opposing side is also there. Because where there's a war, there's always an opposing side. And so that brings us to demons. When you speak with someone who has said they've had an encounter with a demon, the tempting thing can be to try scoff at them to try to give them a natural explanation of what they saw. Well, don't give in to that temptation too quickly. Perhaps what they saw was not a demon, but you were not there, so how can you be sure? God says that the demonic world exists, and this person was shaken by their experience with a malevolent presence that struck terror into their hearts. Ought we to downplay that kind of fear? At the same time, we ought not to play up someone's fear either. And for that reason, it's good for us to know what exactly we're facing. What are demons? In Eastern mysticism, there's this view of the world having two opposite eternal forces. Both good and evil face off against each other from eternity, and their equal power keeps the whole world in balance. You see that with the image of the yin and yang, with the dark and the light. You can see that coming out in movies, that theology coming out in movies like Star Wars, the dark side and the light side. There's this picture based in Eastern mysticism of this eternal struggle between these equal forces. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives. Evil is not a power that's equal with God. Because it is only created beings that have rebelled against God that stand in opposition to Him. We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 
that Satan, otherwise known as the devil or Lucifer, that Satan himself is only a fallen angel. Using the rise and fall of Babylon and Tyre as pictures of what went on in heaven in millennia gone by, there's a picture that's painted for us. First of all, we see in Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following. We read there, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides to the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. In Ezekiel 12, verse 12 and following, we see an even more vivid picture of his privileged position and his task. You can see that God truly and deeply loved him prior to the fall. But his own pride led him to collapse. You'll note that he's using the picture of the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 12, but what's clear here is that he's referring to a spiritual force that's behind this earthly king who was at work. Oh yes, the devil certainly does try to use kings and earthly governments as his instrument to try to subvert the will of God. And in this case, in the case of Ezekiel 12, verse 12 and following, it's very clear that this is a lament that is written for Lucifer. And it's hard to read this without emotion rising up within you because you can see how deeply God cared for his creation. We read there, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. He was a treasured possession of God. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of him before his fall in reverent tones. His beauty was unsurpassed. He was a cherub, one of those categories of angels which we saw that God used as guardians. But his perfection was perverted. His pride laid him low. This was such a great betrayal. God, the most perfect one with whom you could have a relationship with in your life. God, the most perfect father, the most perfect creator. Betrayals in our lives sometimes seem overwhelming and always seem overwhelming and heartbreaking. 
But can you imagine? He knew that it was coming. He knew because he's God. He's God over all creation. But still, can you imagine the blow that it must have been for this? This one that he calls the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, to turn against him. His privileged position led him to think highly of himself and to rebel against his most high God, the most terrible of rebellions, the most bitter of prices. And the price of his rebellion was high. Ezekiel goes on describing it. He says, therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. For all of his power and wisdom and influence, Lucifer, light bearer, his old name meant, was defeated. He lifted up his heart in pride and he rebelled against his creator, but he could not overcome. And he was cast out of heaven. He corrupted other angels during this time and he dragged them down with him in his fall from the towering heights. We read in Revelation 12, verses 3 to 4, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great and fiery dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to earth. And in case there was any doubt as to who those stars represented, the Apostle John, the author of this book, writes in verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. If there was any doubt as to whether or not demons are fallen angels, Christ puts the nail in that coffin too. He says in Matthew 25, verse 41, regarding the wicked on judgment day, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation 12 and following, there's a war between the angelic hosts of Michael, a commander in the Lord's army, and the devil and his angels. These were angels, created beings. Whether or not we're take, to take a third of the stars swept from heaven as a literal third of the heavenly host that fell with Satan, the picture is clear here. Demons are not an extension of some evil power that's existed since eternity. Even the devil is not eternal, all-powerful, ever-present, everywhere-present, or anywhere close to God. The devil and his angels are still mere creatures, created beings. And creation does not have power equal to this creator. That's something that we can take comfort in. We hear stories of demonic influences coming to us from around the world. And sometimes we even hear them closer to home. But we can take assurance in the fact these are created beings. They're less than God. They're less than the Creator. 
Can you subvert the will of God? Can you overturn his will? Can you take any breath that he doesn't want you to take? Can you take any step that he doesn't allow? The same is true for the devil and his angels. There's nothing that they can do in all creation to stand against the power of Almighty God. And so this is a force that we don't need to fear. Does it frighten you that demons are active in this world? A healthy fear of powers that you shouldn't play with or make light of is not a bad thing, but the fact that there's an ongoing spiritual war around us should not strike terror into our hearts. And here's where we should pay special attention. God, the Creator, is all-powerful. He tells us about this war that's going on not to strike fear into our hearts, but to make us aware that there's more to this life than the mere physical. It's a lesson that we shouldn't get so wrapped up in material things, in the things of this world, so as to lose sight of the fact that there's a battle raging around us that has a much bigger goal in mind. You see, this battle is not happening around us with saints getting caught in the crossfire. There is no friendly fire that accidentally takes down one of the people of God. This is a war for the souls of the saints, and it's a war that God inevitably wins each and every single time. With each and every single saint being brought home. He promises us this in Romans 8 verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Those whom God said are his, those who have set their love on the Lord because he first loved us, those are the ones whom he called, whom he declares righteous through his Son, whom he shapes day by day through his Spirit, and whom he will ultimately bring home to heavenly joy and glory. Now it's not like he needs the angels, he's quite capable of intervening himself at any time with a word. He's able to wipe out the demon horde with a thought, casting them into the eternal fires and torments of hell, along with all humans who support Satan in his war. But he gives us this war to make us aware. The war that's going on for the souls of the saints is not meant to strike fear into our hearts, but to encourage us. God has legions of angels that is disposable disposal, all who are tasked with defending his people from attacks of the evil one and for carrying out his will. It's meant to direct our eyes beyond the paltry things of this world. You see, people who live on a war footing live in a completely different way than people who live in peacetime. Now, I'm not speaking of, of distant wars that our countries are involved in, which don't even register on our radars most of the time. How many of you think of all the wars that Canada is involved with as peacekeepers? Could you name 10 peacekeeping missions? No, I'm talking about wars that directly impact day-to-day -day living. If you think to your parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents who lived through the world wars, they had a completely different mindset than us today. 
Many of them lived every day with their minds directed towards the day when the war would be over, when their queen would return home from exile, and when they would be free from living under the boots of Nazi occupation. Those who were in the resistance were even more actively involved with it, making every part of their lives work towards the goal of liberation. We read in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Your focus is different. Having had your eyes open to a spiritual war that's raging around you every day gives you a different perspective on life. Suddenly you're not focused on acquiring goods. You're not focused on riches. You're not focused on fulfilling your own pleasures, but your focus is the end of the war. It's victory. And on the way, no matter how small it is, your focus is on what you can do to support your side in achieving that goal. If we have our eyes open to the war that goes around us and the ultimate goal of that war, we'll be much less inclined to focus on our personal kingdoms. If we have our eyes open to this spiritual war, to our king and to his return, we'll be much more inclined to look at the whole picture. We'll also be much more inclined to pray to God in every moment to have what we need. There's a war going on. And our commander and king will supply us with all our needs according to the riches of his grace. And as for those demons that oppose us, their ultimate end is the, is the pit of fire. They couldn't stand against the commands of Christ who ejected them from the bodies they were riding during their time on earth or when he will fling them into the fiery pit of hell. They couldn't stand then, they can't stand now, and they won't be able to stand at the end of days because he is king. And that brings us to the final part the king of the spiritual world. There is a spiritual battle that's raging around us. There's no question about that. And we read about that in many places, including places like Ephesians 6 verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The, the devil may be referred to as the prince of the power of the air and that does mean he has no small amount of influence and power in this world. But ultimately, he's not the one who's in control. He's created, and as with any creature, he's simply clay in the potter's hand, a vessel bound for destruction. We read in John 1 verse 1 and following, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The devil is a creature. He was made. And before he fell, he was one of the myriads of angels created through our Lord Jesus Christ. In our passage today, Hebrews 1 teaches that he is the one who, of whom the scriptures said, You, Lord, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you'll fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. 
And so to highlight how far above the angels this places him, the author of this letter continues, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool? And in verse 6, but when he, again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is king. Jesus is king over the spiritual world. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All creation is subject to him. The devil and his followers are certainly powerful, but they're only one part of that three-pronged attack against the people on our planet, the world and our own flesh. The world and our flesh and our own flesh, as the other, other two prongs, do an excellent job of trying to undermine us without any need for help whatsoever. The bad influences in society and those around us and the evil which we find in ourselves are quite powerful in their own rights. But God is in control despite those as well. How much more is he not in control over the devil and his minions? Satan's days are numbered. His end is near. But for the people of God, there's hope. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been placed under Jesus' feet. Everything that happens, happens only to serve and further the elect, God's own chosen in their path of holiness. And his plans will not be turned aside. They've never been turned aside, nor will they be. Never will Satan claim one of God's chosen as his own. He is worshipped by angels because he, the Lord, is God the Son. He is supreme over them, and they love him for it. So we're reminded to come in response as well to him. This king of all ages, this one who holds his own and draws them to himself. We're reminded to confess with them, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. John Piper, in speaking of this verse, writes, Test yourself. Do you love Jesus as God? Does Jesus hold a place in your life worthy of God? When we say that we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples, do we mean a passion for the supremacy, for the kingship of Jesus Christ? Oh, I plead with you, love Christ. Worship him. Worship him. He is God. Does the worship of the angels bring, lead you to worship him, beloved? Worship him. He is king. The demons recognize him as king and shudder because they can't withstand him. Does this give you comfort? He is in control even over them, uniquely the Son of God, elevated to a position far above all. And he is our brother, our judge, and our redeemer who's with us to the end. You're not alone. He sent helpers to serve you and accompany you as he, your older brother, brings you home. So be encouraged and hopeful, beloved. And above all, worship Christ. Worship Christ who is king over all. Amen.